Thank you. Well, good morning again. Good morning. Um, as Rev already said, thank you so much for being here. Um, it does. It means a lot. See you guys here um, every week. This week, obviously, we're transitioning from, as the Westminster Standards would say, the first table to the second uh, for the first four commandments. Those that were more vertically oriented, those that were uh, dis uh, dis uh, describing and explaining our relationship in a vertical sense between man and God, to those that are more primarily focused upon man to man. All those we're going to see, there's not always just a hard and sharp distinction between the two. We need to keep in mind that there's elements of both um, in play in most, in most of the time. Um, today will be a little bit different as these commandments change. You know, over the last few weeks, we've been going through kind of a redemptive historical study, looking at the, the, the kind of the grassroots development of some of these doctrines that, and, and uh, things that are foundational for understanding the, the uh, Ten Commandments and establishing that historical biblical context so that we have something. It's like an, uh, swinging a hammer in the air without an anvil. You, you need that context there to hit against, to understand what is, how it's being built up and, and designed to get to the deeper meaning of what's being said. So as we've seen, there's this larger context of the Ten Commandments as a whole, and then each one of those individual commandments strikes a chord with a part of that context and our goal is to try to bring it into more of a personal here and now uh, sense and understanding. And these final six commandments are, um, most of the literature you're going to find on them, uh, it's, it's more um, in term, uh, kind of designed around application, where some of the, uh, the, the prior four, there's a lot of heavy textual exegesis, things like that going on, biblical interpretation redemptive historical teaching. So we have to work a little bit differently and a little bit, uh, uh, a little bit differently to kind of get to what's going on in these next six. Um, this week, I intend to go through uh, the fifth. Next week, the sixth and seventh. And um, so I'm going to change the format just slightly. Uh, I do want to go ahead and point out real quick here on page two, the uh, text itself, the difference in the, in the two accounts. We have a couple of lines that are added uh, in the Deuter Deuteronomy account. Uh, the, we have the added uh, words, as the Lord your God commanded you, and, in the, uh, and that it may go well with you. But the three other lines are consistent. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So if we were going to reflect back just at 10,000 feet here, the first thing I notice, hope that you guys are seeing this too, it should be just kind of jumping off the page. We have the language of land, right? Here we go. What's going on with land? When we see land, there's more than just land in play. There's more than just the temporal land promises and the Lord your God, as we've seen how important that phrase is as well. So those two things, it tells us there's more going on here. Uh, and it's going to tie, uh, tie, hopefully tie all this together. So I'm going to go here to the bottom. Um, I'm just going to give you the kind of the names. We basically have, I have basically three different writers that I've pulled information from for this session. One is John Currid, 
He's a professor of Old Testament at RTS. Um, another is actually from Dr. Michael Heiser, who's now deceased, but he uh, had a, um, a biblical, uh, biblical studies podcast. Um, I've abbreviated that NBP. And then we have information here from uh, Dr. John Fesco, who's at RTS. And uh, those will be the three people I'm going <clears> to <throat> kind of reference today. And the reason I want to do that is I want to show you how um, to try to help you study, be self-learners in this. When you pull up different writers, they're going to, because of limitations in space or uh, the style of what they're writing, the type of writing that it's in, um, they, they're going to have a particular focus or emphasis upon certain aspects of the text. Most of them, unless it's just, I mean, we're talking about one short commandment of ten. This is a very narrow topic, so if you pulled up a, a, a commentary like Courage is from a, his commentary, when you pull that up, you're going to get a very narrow, some commentaries are going to reflect, or writers will reflect more on it than others. So you've got to be careful. That's not all there is to say about the text. And then I've got uh, the NBP, Michael Hodgers. That's from a, a podcast. It's a transcript from a podcast. And what's neat there is it's more casual and it's conversational, and you get to see kind of their reasoning. And as they go through, the, they look at the scriptures, they look at the text, they look forward and backward. It's kind of neat. And then I've got the commentary from um, the last commentary in the back that we'll talk about. Uh, what I appreciate, appreciate about that one is that it is uh, Fesco's. Actually, his is from, uh, is from a monograph on the Ten Commandments. What I like about his is that he's purposefully redemptive historical, and he looks at it through the lens of Christ and New Testament uh, implications. So what we're going to see is each of these writers are going to touch, touch on some of these aspects. They'll touch on them differently. And like what I do when I'm doing this is I would take, I would take um, these resources, and I'm tracking two arguments. I'm tracking the biblical argument, and I'm tracking their argument. I want to see how they are making their case for what the biblical text says. What texts are they referencing? Oh, I made, oh, here's the text. I'm going to put this over here. And if I'm looking at three or four or five or ten commentaries or whatever, I'm just going to take and I'm going to see how many times are they referencing which text. And more, than, more, than, more often than not, you're going to see there's several key texts that almost everyone hits on, and there are several key issues, and then you'll find a new one here, a new one there. Oh, they touched on this. Well, that's a different take on that. And you start to get a, a more a broader perspective on how these arguments are being made. These writers are making arguments about the text, and they're making their argument based on what they perceive the text's argument to be. And that's what I want to know. That's what I want to know. But I need help sometimes because they know more, and they uh, they spend much more time doing it. And so I can I can glean from what they have to say without taking everything they say at face value. I question some things. Um, but I want you to kind of see the, the, the approach of it. So as I go through these things today, it may seem kind of like we're backtracking or hitting things twice, but I want to see how you see how different writers are approaching the same t topic and how they're hitting on some of the same key things, but they'll emphasize different aspects of it. And that's where we can find some real uh, worthy information. So um, here, starting at the bottom of page two, Dr. Currid is going to mention, uh, th this is the second table of the law, the beginning of the second table of the law, uh, the last six commandments, as we see in the Westminster Confession, uh, duty towards um, uh, mankind to themselves. Um, Dr. Sarna, who's a Jewish commentator, 
he notes that this command forms the transition from the first to the second group of divine declarations and that it simultaneously possesses both religious and social dimensions. It shares with the preceding command the formula, the Lord your God. So I pointed that out in the text. You saw that, right? He makes note of that. And he says also, the relationship of Israel to God is often expressed metaphorically in filial terms, family-related terms, right? And that's a huge thing. Almost everybody I've read uh, brings that point out, okay? And we'll see some of that. So uh, on to page three, some of the, just the basic uh, features of the text. Uh, its meaning, the created structure of the family and the authority and bodies must be preserved. Um, so this commandment begins to stress our relationship to other people, especially our attitude towards those who are in authority over us. And it recognizes that all authority ultimately comes from God and he has ordained structures in society to maintain that order. And it recognizes that the family is foundational for the rest of society. It denies that we are isolated, autonomous individuals who can establish our own rules of how to live apart from the God-ordained structures of society. That is basically a summary of everybody that I read on this topic this last week um, in terms of meaning. There's a few things that I'll point out that, are, that I thought were uh, helpful as well. Um, in terms of um, what it forbids, the fifth commandment forbids disobedience to parents as well as to church and civil authorities. Here's a qualification. So long as they are operating within their God-ordained realm of responsibility. Stay in your lane, right? Um, and each realm of authority should not overstep their boundaries. Uh, the state does not establish religious practice, and the church does not carry out penalties related to the civil law. Um, in terms of what the fifth commandment encourages, glad and willing submission to those who are in authority over us if we are doing it to the Lord, and the active role of parents to discipline their children in a biblical way to bring them under control. Um, that's a lot, but that's kind of a short, succinct, kind of 10,000-foot view of what is being written about this. Um, I really don't want to touch on Alice too much. I didn't think he was as strong here, but I think he does. It's a good place to point out here at the bottom of page 3. A key text that we're going to see, Ephesians 6, verses 2 and 3. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And if you're going to look back at the two texts that we had at Exodus or Deuteronomy, which one of those does it sound more like, at least on the service that Paul's referencing? Deuteronomy. That added phrase, and that it may go well with you. So um, he may be pulling it from um, the Septuagint, but um, at least in this case, it seems more in line with the Deuteronomic text. All right, so I'm going to spend a little bit of time here on John Currid. He notes that this is a positive command. Uh, we're on page four uh, here. It means that uh, God's established a hierarchy in human authority, uh, authority structures. Um, he points out this word, uh, and I don't want to get too much into the, into the, the Hebrew words, but I think it's important here, this word, kaved, means weighty or heavy or of great value and worth. Um, you know, we say the point is that um, uh, it's more than just sometimes the meaning. We need to kind of flesh out the meaning of that. This is a really heavy, it's not only an important thing, but the importance that we place both in our relationship with God and with others, especially those who are in authority, is one of, uh, it's a heavy, weighty 
serious uh, devotional reverence, right? We're going to see some of that. Um, he, he mentions the same Ephesians text already. See, we see it 6, 1 through 3. Um, he notes that there's a wider scope here. The directive is normally understood to have a wider scope than just the parent-child relationship. It means that people of God are to honor and obey those whom God has placed over them. And, and he's touching on the same things. He even quotes Calvin here. He says, it strongly conflicts with the depravity of human nature, a nature that desires power and bears submission grudgingly. And uh, I think Calvin's right. <laughs> um, he, I noticed here he lists four texts, 1 Timothy 5, Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 3. Um, and quickly touch on some of those. 1 Timothy 5, 17, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who are laboring in, who labor in preaching and teaching. And look at this. I put that one in there just for you, Reverend. <laughs> Did we get that one? I put that one first. I highlighted that. You see that little technique? Let's... We're in this together, brother. We are in this together. <laughs> um, I don't even want to say <laughs> the Ephesians 5 text. Uh, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Um, 1 Peter 2, keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's so that's very important. Be subject, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors that sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Or 1 Peter 3, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husband, so that, so that, even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. That so that is important. Throughout Scripture, there's one caveat. Um, the person in authority needs to represent Yahweh in the way he or she treats people. And he references Ephesians 5, I think also back to in Deuteronomy, I think it's 17, 18, where we get the rules for the king. And Israel is going to have a king, and he's supposed to read, or he's supposed to write a copy of the law for himself and read from it daily. So that, right? So that he would rule and reign as God's representative in a way that is reflective of who God has called him to be and called all of Israel to be, right? Holy, a holy people, a holy nation, a righteous. And so um, we see that there's, there's a reason, there's, there's more to that. We need to emphasize that. And he, again, he quotes Calvin. Um, they have a perfect right, talking about um, for those who, um, if the authority figure transgresses God's law or demands that his people do unlawful deeds, then, to quote Calvin, they have a perfect right to regard the authorities as strangers who are trying to lead them away from the obedience to the true Father. So the command is really a two-way street. It relates to how people are to obey their superiors and how superiors are to treat those over whom they exercise authority. And I think much of the, of the uh, kind of the contentiousness around some of the discussions about uh, wives submitting to husbands uh, could be, I think, part of it's in, in, in due in part that we don't emphasize the other side of that equation. You know, men, are you 
leading your home in such a way that is reflecting the honor and the glory and the call of God on your lives? Um, are we doing that? And if so, then that helps to facilitate a proper relationship throughout your family. Um, and it starts there, with, you know, the issue, the, the issue of authority, like the king. You know, the king was called to a high calling, and so was the man of the home. Um, I would say that uh, he notes here that the seriousness of the command, of the command is uh, underscored by the promise attached to it. Remember, we talk, when we see language like filial language, family language, we see language like um, the land, we all automatically think covenant promises. And this promise that's in here, you think, is, is almost a reflection of that kind of the relationship we have with the other commandments in covenant language with promise and blessing, right? Remember, they come together, promise and blessing. And there's also the consequences, right? The, the, the covenantal curse. You have the covenantal promises, which always come in the context of blessing. And we have covenantal curses, which come in the context of disobedience, obviously. Um, so he's pointing out those things. I think that I thought that was very helpful. Uh, I'd like to switch kind of quickly back here to uh, Dr. Fesco for a minute on page nine and point out a few things that he reflected on the text. If I see things that we've kind of already touched on, I'm going to go quick through it. Um, he notes that um, he notes that the, the propensity in, uh, in America, in particular, of this rugged individualism. You know, the old Sinatra tune, I did it my way. Um, but um, he points out that that's kind of a, a hurdle um, to, you know, for, my, for many of us in submitting to authority. Um, and, and, he, and he argues that this submission to authority issue is the primary focus of the commandment. Um, and, and I don't know, I, we've all heard some of the common reasons why we, we, we refuse to yield to authority. Um, you know, sometimes uh, authority figures uh, fall short, don't they? Sometimes they're proven to be wrong over time, and it's frustrating. And we're, we become guarded or we become uh, reluctant to want to trust them. Or uh, there's just all kinds of things. It's so complex, the issue of authority. Um, but it's so worthwhile, I think, to, to kind of study it and look at some of the, some of the biblical examples of that. Um, he notes the he he brings to, for, the, to mind the Westminster Confession, um, and he says that this division of the text into two into the two tables, like we've discussed before, is fostered, of course, by Christ's explanation of the two greatest commandments: loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. You see that in Matthew uh, twenty-two, and um, so we want to be careful about making too radical of a separation, like I said, between the two tables of the law: the vertical and the horizontal aspect. There are, especially in this text, as we're transitioning from one, one emphasis to the other, there's still an element of relationship to both. And you see that, like here, like I said, with the language, the covenantal language and things like that. Um, he mentions, <clears throat> he goes and spends some time exploring the original uh, setting of the commandment, what I thought was helpful. Um, talks about the issue of fear. Um, and... <clears throat> um, and what does it mean in terms of the, the, the meaning of that word fear? We see it in English translations. What's going on behind the scenes? And really the emphasis here is on respect or reverence. Um, he, note, he lists some texts from uh, Leviticus and, th and three texts from Proverbs. 
there at the bottom of page 9. I'll re- uh, start there at the bottom of page 9, Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Or the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the holy is understanding. Or honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. Um, fear, honor, reverence. Underneath we may have one or two uh, uh, Hebrew words, but there's a broad range of meaning that can be applied, and it changes in the way it's, in the context in which it's used. And that's what these writers are bringing out. Uh, he notes the filial uh, relationship again. He quotes, um, let's see here, a son honoreth his father and a servant his master. Filial language. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Said the Lord of hosts. Unto you, O priests that despise my name. That's quoting from Malachi. Um, there's a, the other author in here brings up several texts along that line. I'll, I'll point to a few of those. He talks about the promise. Indeed, parents are God's representatives, standing in God's stead and representing his authority on earth. For this reason, the fifth commandment includes the promise of obedience. If, obedi- if Israel was obedient, um, blessings. If she disobeyed, um, curse. The land promise was in play. Remember, it, we, thought, we talked about the tabernacle, the temple, God's holy presence dwelling with his people. And so um, you see this issue of land and covenant and covenantal blessings. All that language is kind of packed in in shorthand in just those few little phrases in that one little verse. Um, the connection to Christ and the church. I think he does really well here. He says, remember that the law is not only a reflection of God's character and attributes, but also a reflection of Christ's obedience and perfect righteousness. So we had Adam, um, God's son, but he disobeyed his heavenly father, the filial relationship, which resulted in exile from the garden. We have, likewise, Israel was God's child. The text calls it God's son. Um, God's child was disobedient to her heavenly father, which resulted in her exile from the promised land. Now let us consider Christ, the only begotten Son, filial language, was obedient to the will of His heavenly Father. He fulfilled God's rule of love through His obedient submission to the Father. He, they're bringing out this whole large biblical redemptive historical swoop of information, and they're saying all of this is evidence. It is evidence in God's court about the way things are and the way they should be, right? There is a filial relation. I will be your God and you will be my people. Emmanuel principle, God with us. He wants to be with us in communion, in community, but he is holy, right? And so all of this is driving to this. There's this relationship. We're going to be brothers and sisters of Christ, right? So the filial concept is embedded in here, and it's very powerful. Um, He brings this forward to us. Um, You see this in Christ's obedience in the 40-day wilderness experience. Uh, Right at the beginning, right before he begins his public ministry, uh, in the middle of Luke chapter 4, for example. So uh, what do you see? He had the baptism, and the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. He had the 40-day experience. He comes back out. He's ready to begin his public ministry. Um, and then what do we have here? Uh, we also have the Garden of Gethsemane, two places in particular where we see his obedience in a filial sense. And not only that, but in the uh, 40-day wilderness experience, he's reenacting He's reenacting Israel as God's son who failed in that, in that same you know, 40 years in the wilderness. So there's a lot of symbolism there, a lot's going on. And I think uh, 
Um, Dr. Fesco does a pretty good job of bringing some of those uh, key texts to light. Um, you're going to see here at the bottom of page 10, um, while the fifth, he, he notes that while the fifth commandment speaks specifically about honoring parents, it may be more broadly applied to any God-instituted authority, husbands, parents, elders, employers, civil government. Um, he shows some important texts there. And then on page 11, he really focuses a little bit here at the end on the Christ-centered approach, which this, like I said, one of the things I really appreciate about the way he writes. He's very pur purposeful in that. Um, and um, he said, of all, all of God's people, from the least to the greatest, must reflect the righteousness of Christ. Um, for him, he is pointing out that this is, there is a hierarchical relationship, but everyone should be in tune to that primary objective and calling to be transformed in the image of his son, though we actually do reflect the honor and the glory that's due to the Father, right? And that we are reflecting the perfect example of that in Christ himself. And so I think he does a, a very good job here uh, pointing that out. He says, uh, one more thing, we may not rebel against authority if we think it is heavy-handed or unjust. We may disobey authority only if it imposes sinful demands upon us. What do you guys think about that one? If the if it if the penalty or or whatever is unjust or heavy-handed I, I do too I, I have a I have a heavy I have a problem with that and and I think I kind of got frustrated with Esco because he just had to throw the text in my face and say hey Christ did he endure unjust punishment was the penalty unjust that he endured? Um, I, in one sense, it was it was the true enactment of justice in terms of the father, right? The father felt it was appropriate for what it was doing, but was it just in his case? And I'm like, okay, I got to think a little bit more about that one. That's why I brought that one up because it got me fired up. You said must, like not must not. Because I, I would say yeah. the exact opposite of my issue. Like if it's clearly if it's going against the word of God, I would just say no. But like justice in the broader sense, my spirit and instincts say no way, man. But yeah. I struggle with that one, and I, I think that that's one I circle on here. I'm going back to that. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna look at this a little bit more because I'm just not sure that Fest goes. I just got to work it out, you know. I know I'm wrong somewhere in there, and he's gonna point it out eventually. But I, uh, I need to think on that one. <laughs> You're not alone. I'm with you. <laughs> um, so I want to finish up. Uh, we got what ten, five, ten, five. Uh, I want to finish up quickly here on this. On page five, you'll see NBP. It stands for Naked Bible Podcast, and it's basically a biblical studies podcast where they go through different texts um, every week. Um, Dr. Michael Heiser has passed away, but you still gain access, and other people have filled in since then. I don't agree with him on everything, but I thought it was interesting because what you have here is you have in a real casual you know, podcast setting, He's kind of going through the arguments, and he's done all the homework, and he's looked at all the different writers, and they're re and reflected on the text. 
He's a was an Old Testament professor, and so he just starts talking about it. And if you start reading this, kind of listen, to, you can listen to the podcast and go online and get the old versions and listen to them. It's just interesting to see how he's building his argument and what he chooses to reflect on. So uh, I'm going to go quickly through it, but he reflects on the uh, here on page five. He reflects on uh, the filial uh, aspect of it uh, and the relationship uh, to the covenant with the land concept. Uh, he brings out some of these texts, Exodus 4:22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Okay, so filial language. Israel is my firstborn son. Jeremiah 31, 20. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? See that filial language um, brings into mind concepts of the covenant. Um, And rhetorical questions like, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So when we see this filial language, we need to, you know, is we need to kind of look at it and think about it in terms of is this what is this is this is this being used as a rhetorical device to bring us into to bring kind of to to download into our mind other big concepts. Um, what is this pointing to? Uh, you so you get this family language. Um, and covenant promises, Dr. Sarna, Dr. Sarna says, the same verbs of honoring and revering are used in expressing proper human attitudes to both God and to parents. I thought that was pretty interesting. He says, so the same verbs in the Hebrew Bible are used both of how you relate to parents and how you relate to God. So this is a bridge. That's how they're getting to the argument for the, this text is a bridge of the two halves of the two tables of the law, of the commands, um, relationship to God and relationship to other image bearers. Uh, he's, he mentions Exodus 21. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. That's pretty strong language. Um, so they have a very obvious one about revering parents. Um, he says the same language is used of God in Leviticus 24, Numbers 15. So we get this language in both. Sarna points this out. He says, in fact, the obligation to respect is enjoined only for God and parents. And the offender in either instance is liable to the extreme penalty. The, par- the parallels point to the supreme importance that the Torah assigns to the integrity of the family for the sake of the stability of society and generational continuity. Family life is the bedrock upon which Jewish society stands. No other item in the Decalogue is similarly formulated wholly in positive terms. And for no other is there a promise of reward. So if you remember back to one of the first sessions we had here on page two of your notes, you'll see um, on page two, that little green bar where I've got the first, which is actually the commandment part of this, honor your father and your mother. Then you get the qualifications that your day may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You see, I've got it in green. That means it's positive. The remaining five, you'll see are all negative and they're very terse, except for the last one. There's a big explanation, but they're very short, very terse. Actually, just two words each in Hebrew. So this is positive. And what he's saying is this is very important because we're not only the transition here, but it's in positive language. And, um, and it has, it's the only one with a promise, attendant promise to it. Um, so uh, he, know, he, he points this out. There's also no time limit to it, right? So at what point am I supposed to stop honoring or revering my mom and dad? It never stops, right? Now, it's going to be qualified, and it can change, that status can change, especially think about, as he'll point out later, in the context of marriage, what happens, 
right? So the cleave to one another language we have. And so we have an issue of authority and how that's going to be um, worked out. Especially think about in the context here, they're likely dwelling in the same home, in the same tent. They just put a partition up and mom and dad over here, young family over here, maybe brother over here, and he may be the older brother. He may be running the household. So now I've got that issue to deal with. So I don't know how well I would have done in the, in the tent situation. You know what I'm saying? I've got dad, I've got maybe grandpa, and I've got my brother over here who I've always dealt with. And they're all calling the shots, and I'm trying to keep, you know, my side of the tent straight. <laughs> this could be interesting. I, I think when you think back at that context, it, it probably was very dynamic. Yeah. Um, and so uh, he points some of this out. It's irrespective of age, and it applies to both parents. And I think that just goes right over the radar. It's man, it's, husband, it's mother and father, right? Um, so what does honor mean? He talks about this. He fleshes this out here on page six. He's going to flesh it out. Um, and I think this is very important too. It's another Hebrew thing. I'm not going to get into the, the, the weeds with it. But in essence, the word for cursing here, and he's talking about... Um, uh, in Leviticus 20, for anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother, his blood is upon him. That verb that they're using there in the text, it, I'll put it this way, the way, that they, the way that they have written that verb in the text it has a, what they call a factative sense. It means it is um, pointing to something, right? It's pointing to the consequence of that type of behavior. It is pointing out, it's emphasizing that the, the negative, it, it's not only what is the, the cursing itself, but what the cursing leads to. So the, the way we lose that emphasis in the English translations oftentimes, what they're trying to emphasize there is, it's not only just the act of cursing, but what it leads to. And he points out it leads to the parent are being demeaned or humiliated, not kaved, heavy, not weighty uh, reverence, but demeaned, undermined, um, disrespected. We saw some of the same concepts in, in what? We see it in the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name, right? We see it, we said, uh, the very first uh, part of the commandments, you know, um, the name of God. And so um, it's weighty, and we shouldn't do anything that would weaken that. Um, it talks about the issue of revere. What does it mean to fear? Um, he talks about um, this issue of uh, another verb. They really get into the verbs here and the words here because they're rich in the way that they're being used. Um, he even goes into language about uh, marriage. So obviously we can't get through all this today. Um, you know, I, I want to point out, he, he does mention that, you know, what happens when parents become uh, like, you know, compromised, incapacitated, Alzheimer's, dementia, there is a, although there is no technical scriptural limit, right, to reverencing uh, that authority and that reverence and respect to uh, your, your elders, there is a practical limit, right? God's never going to, you're not going to be, in, it's not a problem. You're not going to be in trouble if you're asked to do by something from an authority figure that is going to cause you to sin or cause others to sin, right? That's not, that's not right. Um, and... Um, obviously, if they're incapacitated, unable to make 
give good counsel, wise judgment, that, that is a factor too. So there, there are qualifications, and, and I think what you'll see as you read through here that they kind of touch on those qualifications and biblical precedent for them, and I thought that was helpful as well. But what I really wanted to do is just kind of introduce you to how different writers are reflecting on this topic um, and, and how I kind of work through the material to get to glean from it some of the better information. So you're going to, you know, there, like I said, there's a two arguments. There's the arguments that each individual writer is making and what text they're referring to and how they're drawing their argument. And then there's the argument of the text. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to see, take all of these arguments from these writers and see if there's, you know, what is their different reflections on the argument of the text. What does the text mean, both in its original historical context and how can I apply that to me now? And when you deal with these final six commandments, this side of the table of the law, it's super important because we can get into the weeds really quick. So I know it was a lot. I appreciate you guys being here. I uh, hope it was helpful. Um, I'm going to close this with a quick prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day and this time together that we can uh, read and reflect on your word, that we might uh, learn to be obedient unto the truth and the calling uh, that you have for our lives. We love you. We thank you for all things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.